Who is the man the voice of God denounces, resounding out of the rocky gorge of Delphi? The horror too dark to tell, whose ruthless bloody hands have done the work. That's a piece from the faux reels, all-male version of Oedipus Rex. Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Cutting edge, classic, serious, and seriously silly. That's how Fordham professor Mark Greenfield describes Oedipus Rex, the play he's directing. I sat down with Mark, Steve Johnson, who plays Oedipus, Jason Scott Quinn, and Raphael Miguel to find out more about how they plan to infuse this classic dramatic text with humor for a modern audience. Oedipus Rex is the story of a, a guy in Thebes whose parents are told that when the son grows up, he is going to kill the father, and they're told by a prophet. And everybody believes whatever these prophets say. So the parents take the son and uh, stick a big needle through his ankles and try to leave him, uh, give him to a shepherd to basically kill. But the shepherd gives him to somebody else, and he ends up being taken to another kingdom and raised by a king and queen in the neighboring kingdom. When he becomes an adult, he discovers that he doesn't know who his real parents are, and he's also told that he is not only going to kill his father, he's also going to couple with his mother, a couple being the genteel way of saying it. So he runs away from the people he thinks are his parents, and on the way back to Thebes, he encounters his father, who he kills, uh, and when he arrives in Thebes, he is given, uh, as a reward for doing something to help the city, he is given the hand of his mother, whom he then has four children with. After years of living happily with his wife slash mom, uh, a terrible plague hits the city, and the oracle tells people that they have to find out who is the killer of Oedipus's father, King Laius. And Oedipus conducts a thorough investigation, much like a psychoanalysis, actually, and when he discovers that he has killed his father and has been sleeping with his mom for all these years, he takes uh, two big pins and gouges out his own eyeballs. It's a, it's a, it's a comedy, basically. <laughs> it sounds very <laughs> funny. <laughs> okay, so tell me this. What about your adaptation? Our adaptation, we actually look for the humor in it. Our, our take on the whole thing is that the Greek plays uh, were meant to be highly entertaining. And we're done at these festivals where people were drinking gallons of wine and sitting in the sun all day. And they were done in competitions. So there would be three plays, and whoever's play would win would, would get a big prize. And it was, so it was very competitive. So they had to be entertaining. So, you know, when we approach these things in school, very often we think of these guys in togas uh, speaking sonorously and with great gravitas. And, and we miss the fact that uh, the plays had to be exciting, scary, freaky. And what we really try and do is actually find the entertainment value in it. And in such a way that uh, that explores the relationship between what is entertaining and funny and awful and exciting about something and also what is its deeper meanings and that the two that you can have both uh, meaning and content and also have something be highly entertaining so we actually look for the humor in this play we look for the violence we look for what is sexually charged and uh, we try and make these plays accessible to a broad American populist audience. So give me a sneak peek of what aspect is going to be funny. What are you going to say? What are you going to do that is really going to make people laugh? Ha ha. Um, well, the character of Tiresias, uh, when, when he comes out, uh, uh, Jason over here is playing Tiresias. 
he's generally treated as a very he's he's a blind man. Whenever somebody blind in one of these stories says something, you have to listen to them because they always know the future in all these old stories. So he's treated it traditionally in this very grave, serious way. But if you read his lines, he's basically zinging off one-liners, as you'll hear later on when we do a scene. And we we have the character when he's coming out as kind of as this old, gurgly, flatulent man who's <laughs> kind of making a lot of, you know, who's making a lot of bodily noises as, as Oedipus is singing his praises. So um, right away, purists who come into the show are like, well, that, that's not the way Tiresias is supposed to be. He's... He's not supposed to be flatulent, and and I, I say to them, yes, he is. It's, it's in the text. So, Jason, what challenges did you find in playing your character? Yeah, I found uh, challenges in just the idea of keeping it keeping it real while honoring, you know, number one, the story of that really needs to be told, but also the way that it is written. Uh, Tiresias mocks Oedipus. He openly mocks Oedipus and when you're mocking someone that's what you're doing it's not just uh, about the language itself it's about the the psychological actions that you're playing with uh, the other character uh, in this case with someone who <laughs> I'm playing someone who is blind trying to make someone who is sighted see what's really going on and I think that's really what's going on in the story and he he tries to uh, he tries to evade. He tries to uh, have uh, Oedipus pity him and let him off the hook. But finally, he says, "Okay, you asked for it. I'm going to tell you flat out what you're not seeing." And the entire time, Oedipus continues to not see it. We have other members of the cast of characters here, so go around the table and tell me about your character and what's important about your character. This is Raphael. I am one of many members in the chorus. I feel like the chorus in many ways, I'm very biased, but is the best character in the play because they um, get to be on stage the most and they get the most speeches and um, they kind of speak for the people and they're the ones who are having the story happen to them with the audience as well. Now, chorus means that you perform different characters when needed. It's not something that we see in modern scripts at all. It's just written down in the script as chorus, but you're this voice of whatever you need to be at that moment. So, Steve, you are the main character. What emotion or experience did you have to tap into to play Oedipus? Um, uh, playing Oedipus has been uh, quite a trip, and he goes through such a journey. I mean, because it's, uh, it's a very text-driven part. Um, so to keep the, the pace up and go with that, it's, you know, there's a, a lot of physical stuff that's driving that and then he goes through so much emotionally but um really the the culmination for me um it's my my most hated and favorite part of the play at the same time is at the end where he comes back after uh, after gouging out his eyes and is basically just uh wailing out his soul um it's something that takes takes me a bit to get there and uh, it takes me like a day to get back from. If you catch me after a performance and I, I seem a little, you know, <laughs> it's uh, I'm, I'm not not quite back from that place yet. What is the big scene in the play, and what is the big scene for you in the play, for your particular character? This is Jason. Uh, for me, my uh, my big scene would be the one scene that Tiresias is in. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tiresias is summoned by Oedipus, and 
Um, he's asked the uh, the the question of who uh, who killed my father. Tiresias knows that the answer is you did. No, I can't say I grasped your meaning. Out with it again. I say you are the murderer you hunt. That obscenity twice, by God, you'll pay. Shall I say more so you can really rage? Much as you want, your words are nothing, futile. You cannot imagine. I tell you, you and your loved ones live together in infamy. You cannot see how far you've gone in guilt. You think you can keep this up and never suffer? Indeed, if the truth have any power. Oh, it does. But not for you, old man. You've lost your power, stone blind, stone deaf. Senses, eyes, blind as stone. I pity you. Flinging at me the very insults each man here will fling at you so soon. It's a it's a really fun scene to play. Um, I think one of the interesting things about the uh, other part of your question about um, what the big scene in the play is, is that if you look at the text, I think, you know, the big scene doesn't exactly happen on stage. Um, the uh, The messenger comes in and tells the story of... This horrible thing that happened with Jocasta killing herself and uh, Oedipus uh, blinding himself. And uh, that's a unique challenge uh, in the script that it's uh, it's told uh, secondhand. But um, I think uh, in our production, we've uh, done some very interesting things with uh, mask work and uh, what we call uh, a dumb show where uh, members of the chorus are acting out what the messenger is saying and uh, lines are being doubled by uh, Jocasta and Oedipus. So it, it really creates um, a presence of that moment, which is, you know, what I would say the climactic moment of the play. And uh, Raphael, you play uh, a, a bunch of different characters. Which, and, and is it fair to say which one is the big one for you? Um, th there's one, or which scene is the big scene for you? There's one choralog um, that comes in right after um, um, things are getting suspicious that Oedipus may be the person that he's looking for, that he may be the the reason that this plague is happening. And in that choralogue, the, the chorus just bounces back and forth, and it feels like they're very stuck, and they don't know where to side. And it starts, destiny guide me always. Destiny find me filled with reverence, pure in word and deed. To me, the subtext is like, okay, I have no idea what's happening, but fate, I, I, I surrender to you. I'm not going to mess this up. I'm not going to try to decide what's going on here. It's all about destiny. And later on in the speech... In that same speech, there's a line, Never again will I go reverent to Delphi, the inviolate heart of Earth, or Apollo's ancient oracles at a bay, unless these prophecies all come true. It's, al it's almost threatening to stop believing in the gods unless this comes true, because there's this immense, uh, for me in that speech, frustration not knowing who to side with, not knowing whether to believe the prophet, whether to believe in the gods, to side with Oedipus, and it's... To me, that's that's the most tense moment of the chorus's journey in the play. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon, speaking with the members of the Full Real Theater Company. They're performing their humor-filled all-male version of the Greek classic Oedipus Rex. Why choose to remake Oedipus? And why an all-male production? Great question. Um, this is Mark. I, I teach at Fordham right here in the Bronx, and I was doing Oedipus with my class. And I was searching for a play to do, searching, and, and then one day it hit me. I was like, I'm going to do 
the essential blueprint of the modern play. Because for me, you could really take at least 50% of all plays that are ex in existence now, and you can trace them all back to Oedipus. Then when we started playing with the idea of doing Oedipus, uh, me and the other company members started talking about, well, let's try and do it exactly like the Greeks did it, but not the Greeks like the guys in the white togas and all speaking like, oh, I'm Oedipus, you know, not that kind of Greek, but the Greek crazy guys running around thrashing wheat naked while after drinking two gallons of wine and then going to do a play in that state. So when we thought about what made Greek theater Greek theater, part of it is the fact that it was done with a single gender. It was a, a monogendered play. So, you know, we always talk about Oedipus and the Oedipus complex and the relationship between Oedipus and his mother. And we neglect the fact that, oh, yeah, his mom was played by a guy. So <laughs> we wanted to explore. And it was an exploration to see what actually happens. You know, for me, th theater is like jiffy pop popcorn. You know, it's it's it, I mean, it's not in a way it's not more fun to make than it is to eat. I, I want to make something that I want to eat. And in the process, I want to I want to actually discover something. And very often I'll do a play because I feel like that's the play I want to see. And I felt like I, as an experiment, wanted to see what happens when Jocasta is a guy and you put him on stage with Oedipus. What does that do to our modern conception of what this play is supposed to be? Steve, we talked a little bit about your challenging part um, and your semi did you say it was your favorite part it's your, yeah it's okay. it's it's my favorite and the most challenging and um i've never seen a uh, you know a bigger or more engaged audience watching a greek tragedy um as an actor where you know and i've i've gotten into uh the gesture work and and you know working in uh in the mode that that mark directs and it really does uh, you know i think great things for the show it's at the end uh, it's kind of like a, a free verse for the actor. Um, I'm blinded. I'm moving around on my own, um, you know. And it's just, it's just kind of my pure communion with that character, you know. But, but I mean, by the end of the play, I'm just, you know, like sobbing and dry heaving, and you know, like just basically my body is in rebellion to uh, the emotions and everything that I'm funneling through it. And then Mark feels like he did a good job because he's challenged you and he pulled all of this out of you i hope so i i, I hope he likes the ending that's definitely mark is shaking his yeah. head yeah <laughs> <laughs> so can i ask you that mark was that a concern of yours uh when recreating this play that people would go i'm not gonna get greek tragedy i'm result oriented i for me it's not just a process and i do what i want and if people get it they get it and if they don't they don't that's just not how i work i'm very concerned with what the, the audience getting it uh, I want my work to reach a broad populist audience. And what I found generally that uh, when I create work that that my my sensibilities tend to be something that in a way, in some odd way, are quirky and weird, but do translate well to, to a broad audience, that people are generally entertained by the things that I think are funny uh, and goofy and... and there's many terrible things you could do to make people laugh that I would not want to do, and you could make a list of them. There's, you know, there's the jokes we shouldn't tell, the things we shouldn't do, and I don't want to do those things. So uh, at the same time, there are wonderful, erudite, high ideals and um, and concepts that are, are boring. <laughs> 
So I, I really work with an awareness of both. But but from the very beginning, I work with an awareness of, and and I am concerned with, will this be entertaining to an audience? Uh, and now, if that's all there is, then it's not worth my while. Because you want the intelligence and I, the entertainment. I, I want something in it that goes beyond just being purely entertaining. Something that is. Uh, that touches the part of people that's hard to sort of verbalize and that but that piques people's interest and and makes people question things challenges people's comfort zone and ultimately leads to some sort of feeling of catharsis afterwards so uh, can i go around the table and ask a, a similar question what do each of you want your audience to come away with even if you're you don't get that immediate gratification of the standing ovation and the clap. How do you know that you did a good job that night? This is Raphael. That's a really challenging question for me because I find as an actor that the more I try to focus on what I want them to get, um, the more I set myself up for either disappointment or delight at something that I can't control. What I aim for in this play and in my work is to tell tell the story of the play quite simply. And also, uh, I think one of, one of my favorite parts about doing this play is that there's something very transcendent about it, very ancient and transcendent. And um, I, to answer your question, I guess I hope that um, some of that divine energy that goes with all that sort of baseness that, you know, um, that's so primordial about the play comes across to the audience. This is Jason. Uh, for me, there are just moments where if I get some laughs as Tiresias, I know they're on the same page as me. I know they're listening. I know they're they're on the ride with us. It's not one of those things that we're, you know, lampooning uh, Oedipus, but I think it's, you know, finding the heart of it beyond just the... Uh, intellectual ideas within i mean um i so there there are times where i know that uh, when, when i mock him that they're you know they're hearing it almost as uh Flo mocks george jefferson on the jeffersons or uh how uh, i'm taking uh oedipus and turning him into uh al bundy and or into uh archie bunker i, I mean i think in along those lines but really it's it's uh it's about what's grotesque and what's grotesque is um a lot of times and with a lot of faux real work i think what's grotesque is funny it's uh it's uh looking at uh, for me it's the writings of bakhtin talking about uh the idea of the grotesque is to uh usurp the king and that's exactly what's happening uh for me in those moments uh, on stage with Oedipus. Uh, this is Steve. For this character and um, any other character that I play, it's basically I want the audience to not only, because I, I, when I direct, when I write, I, I feel that theater and art in general, it's it only becomes art when you have something to say. Even if you can't define it, if there is a communication between people, and that's why... Uh, you know what Mark says uh, being result oriented I have a lot of respect for because artists that say well I don't care if the audience gets it or whatever uh, you know I just I can't vibe with that but um, in terms of a character that I'm playing 
I want everything from the audience. I want them to look at me. I want them to love me. I want them to hate me. I want them to want to fight me. I want them to want to sleep with me. Uh, it's like uh, just everything in that character, I want them to feel for that character. Now, it sounds like there's a, a deep combination of the cerebral, the down-to-earth, the emotional, the entertaining, the artistic. You got a lot to work with, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You got a lot to work with. So tell me, how did the faux real, am I saying it right? Or am Correct, I putting yes. too much, am, is that too ethnic, faux real? That no, <laughs> that's, how, that's how it's supposed to be sounded. <laughs> <laughs> how did the faux real theater company come together? I had been touring with a bunch of theater companies as an actor for a long time, and I found myself very often working with very talented directors and feeling a little bit like, hey, you know, if I was doing it, I would do it this way. I, I love what this guy's doing, but I, I would change this and that. And after a certain while, I felt like, you know, I should either put up or shut up because I found myself a lot saying to people, I would do it like this. And I just decided I, I wanted to synthesize the work I had done as an actor and, and sort of create my own style. And faux real, the name faux real, uh, you know, meaning fake real, the the idea behind the name is that we explore what is deep and organic and profound, but rather than sitting around and navel-gazing, we, we work from the surface to the inside. So we don't sit there and say, what's my character feeling? What are you feeling? Why are you feeling it? So let's talk about this for an hour about, about what your character had for breakfast, Chad. And uh, ra rather, <laughs> rather, than, rather than doing that, I'll say to people, move, go, do a gesture, do something here, run, kick a wall, and get people to physicalize. Because I feel like very often actors, when you force them to a point where they stop thinking actually come up with the most brilliant discoveries. In terms of lead, follower, get out of the way, you're leading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I follow too, though. I mean, listen, the, the most of the best things that happen in the show, it's 50-50. I, I come up with some purely brilliant ideas, of course. <laughs> but, but a lot of the best things that happen in the shows are things that a actors do when they think they're, they're misbehaving or when they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Or, Example? Uh, yeah. Um, I, we did this production of uh, Henry IV that Jason and I worked on together, and there, I got this one actor so mad, and, I, and he just started kicking a wall. And I said, that's it. From now on, your character in every scene has to go and kick, kick a wall. And he was like, and, and, and so the actors would just say, be careful what you do in rehearsal, <laughs> because if it's, whatever it is, Mark's going to ask you to do it on stage. <laughs> so. so how long has your uh, company been around? We've been around since 1994 when we did a backwards uh, version of Macbeth called Hetebcam, Cam, which was, which was not the most accessible of shows, actually. Uh, but it started with all the characters um, dead on stage, and then uh, Macduff puts Macbeth's head back on him and pulls a sword out of him, and then goes back through his life reincarnating people. Wow. That, that's, that's where it all began. I'm Robin Shannon on 90.7 WFUV discussing the Faux Real Theater Company's production of Oedipus Rex, directed by Fordham professor Mark Greenfield. I have another uh, a group question here. Is there a writer slash actor that you believe has the longevity of creating a piece of work that future generations will rewrite and readapt and retell like Oedipus? This is Steve. Uh, Steve. Hopefully. 
<laughs> trying to try not trying to you know it's i i have such trouble writing about you know every everything is like this this has to be the the thing that will you know that uh, you know uh, carve my name in in the foundations of the earth and that's why i i have very few finished products of anything because it it has to be that one thing you know that uh that's going to that's going to endure i mean oedipus we're still doing it 2500 years later and uh that's what i'm shooting for in in everything that i write well steve um, don't you have to finish it for it to be epic well you know i figure i'll just kind of like tape everything together in the end and it'll be an epic uh view into the madness of this poor guy who is a really good writer but just, you know never really came through and uh the, yes amadeus yes. indeed this is jason i'd say probably not nobody you can think of well i mean i i think it's uh because of the times that we live in the uh number one we're still telling the old stories we're telling it in different ways but i can't really think of anyone who's telling such a brand new story that is going to be uh worth repeating over and over and the other thing is we have technology and um a lot of these things uh we are seeing uh preserved Uh, if you want to um, you don't have to retell The Godfather. You can rent The Godfather. You know, we I just don't think we have uh, many of the... We, we don't have the playwrights like Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, and uh, Eugene O'Neill. We, we don't really have that tradition. It, it was, you know... Um, and they were all, you know... They were all influenced by, you know, the Chekhovs and the Strindbergs and the Ibsens who were, you know, influenced by Shakespeare, who is influenced by Commedia and uh, Oedipus. <laughs> um, just to go full circle there. And Raphael, I have to ask you the same question. What writer slash actor do you think has the longevity that will be reading or watching their stuff for years and years and years and years? <clears throat> if there is one. I'm inclined to to initially respond in the, the same way that Jason did to say that nobody pops in my head like a bright light bulb but I don't think it's because I don't admire or don't find genius in what some other people do in our time it's just because you know um, Shakespeare is one of my favorite all time writers and I just think it's so ironic that we know nothing about his life and um I'm really curious, your your question made me really curious as to like what people thought of him when he was writing. If if things had worked out differently, if we as a society had been in a different place all these centuries later, would we have cared for Shakespeare or would we have idolized Marlowe or something like that? You know, I think it's a very subjective thing and, and something that's impossible to try to predict. Jason said we don't need to retell The Godfather. But if you notice, there are numerous remakes, whether it be film, whether it be TV shows, whether it be musically. So why do you think there are so many remakes happening as opposed to people's original works being produced and performed? This is Mark. The reason there that I, I think the reason there are so many remakes versus new works is uh, it comes down to cash. It's easier, it's less expensive, you know, in film, there's just really the bottom line is is such a large factor. It's just a much safer bet if you're going to invest $20 million, $30 million into making a film, you are safer uh, with a known quantity. 
But aren't we shortchanging ourselves? Aren't they shortchanging themselves and, and shortchanging the creativity that could come from this? The, I think they are still great movies that come out that are not remakes. Uh, but they're the exception, not the rule. And the rule is always going to be the median. And that's just the way it goes. And that was probably the way it went in Shakespeare's time. You know, Shakespeare, for the record, was a, a panderer and an entertainer and very concerned with entertaining and marketability. And Hollywood is no different. Mark, you said you do teach uh, Oedipus here at Fordham. Yeah. Correct. Um, how has directing Oedipus Rex changed or influenced how you teach the class? Or has it? It, 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 it hasn't that much because I was teaching it. I taught that play for a couple of years before I started directing it. And I'm, just, I'm a lot more familiar with it. I'm a lot more familiar with it. I just know it really backwards and forwards. It, it hasn't so much. It makes it easier to teach because I, have, I, I invite my students to see it so they can say, oh, uh, they can sort of see when we're having a discussion about what, what my take on it is, they can see it in action. Be like, oh, here's another take on it. And I've had students who have given really cogent, convincing arguments with me as to why what I'm doing is completely incorrect. And I enjoy that process. And, and that's actually been very uh, enjoyable that's been I've really enjoyed working at Fordham in that sense of really having people sort of challenge um, my my codified experimental theater viewpoints. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that process, and in that sense, to some extent, I think almost the teaching informs the directing more than the directing informs the teaching. My thanks to director and Fordham professor Mark Greenfield. I'd also like to thank Steve, Jason, and Raphael. To find out more about the Faux Real Theater Company, visit faulreal.org. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Never will I convict my king. Never in my heart. Uh.